Well, good, good morning, everybody. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, as always, for our church, Lord, that we can gather together and hear week after week wonderful teaching from your word by our pastor, and we thank you for his giftedness, and we thank you for his faithfulness. And Lord, we also thank you for this class, that we're able to gather together and share one another's prayer requests, but also, again, study your word. And I pray that as we study today, you will give us ears to hear from your word, that you will apply the truths of your word as we need to hear them, and that you will continue to work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all as always, and if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Peter, I spent most of last Sunday giving a lengthy background on the first four verses, because it had been quite a while since September 11th that I had taught in Second Peter, but now we're back in the book and we're going to be digging in, and so I'm not going to go back over all of the review, because I just did it in such detail last week. But we are coming to verses 5 through 7, and it's a transitional point in the book, but a very important point for us. As I went through things again last week, the first four verses were really the foundation for the entire book. Peter pointed us where he was going. He laid the foundational truths in terms of what God had done in calling us and in saving us, and also in giving us his word, his promises, and now he's quickly transitioning to the practical application of those truths. And I introduced at the end of last week, and I didn't change my mind, we really are on a road to Christian maturity. And so borrowing an analogy from our common travels around our area, the outline was eight mile markers to Christian maturity. And we are today going to dig into those, but I listed all of the eight for you before. And we're going to get started, and hopefully we'll finish it next week. But we're going to dig into these eight mile markers, and they're really a measuring stick that we can use to look, how are we doing? Are we growing in our faith? And as I've said over and over, as we've talked about Second Peter, it was primarily directed at error. It was a concern, as we'll see later, because I'm going to reference the verse again, He's very specific in Second Peter chapter 2 that false teachers, false prophets are a concern. People who are distorting the truth. But Peter also, I believe, because he's writing to the same audience as First Peter, is really teaching us truths that complement what he already taught us. The overarching point of First Peter was to be holy as God is holy, and I think that still... Peter's focus, even though he's putting the message in the context of false teachers and the need to be on the alert. I believe what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, is really being played out in the verses we're studying today. He said in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I think that's what these few verses are really about, is how do we walk in a manner that keeps our behavior excellent? 
particularly in a lost and dying world that's screaming at us, that's arousing our fleshly sinful tendencies, but also that hates us and wants us to prove ourselves to be hypocrites. Ultimately, this text, I believe, is pointing us on how we can live the proper Christian life, which will, by definition, be evangelistic because it's going to be so different than everyone around us. So again, I briefly covered these things, but as we look at verse 5, I'm going to go ahead and read again verses 5 to 7, and then we'll dive in more substantively to the text. Verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Just those very first words. Now, for this very reason also, as we covered last week, he's talking about the fact that because God called us, because God saved us, because God gave us everything we need, we already have everything we need to live a godly life. He's given us his promises. He's given us his word. Now, for this very reason also, he says, applying all diligence. Applying all diligence. We're not into our mile markers yet, but he's making it clear that as we look at these things, with one exception that I'll allude to in a moment, he's talking about the fact that we have to work to do these things. We have to put in the effort. Again, he stressed very clearly that our salvation is a gift from God. We've been chosen by him. It's been given to us. Even his word is a gift to us. But now that we have all these things, for this very reason also, we're supposed to work. Applying all diligence goes without saying, I think, except that I'm going to say it, so I guess it doesn't go without saying. The idea of lazy Christianity is very foreign to Peter. In fact, it's very foreign to the entire New Testament. And yet, far too many people don't get off the starting block in the Christian walk particularly in a country like America where we have protections and we're not really suffering in any meaningful way for our faith. People don't like us. People don't like when we call out sin, but by and large, we're not going to prison because we're Christians. We're not getting attacked because we're Christians. Not in any substantive way like our brothers and sisters around the world. And as we start to go through this, an image came to my mind Friday as I was working on this message, an image came to my mind, and it really is this idea of diligence, and I'm going to get into the word, another word that is talking about our effort, but really, there's an image here that Peter's painting for us, and I'm going to try and paint the contrast, and I hope the illustration works. When we go to youth summer camp up in North Carolina, I've been going for many, many years. It's a lot of fun. It's a good Effort, but there are two primary water activities. They do have a pool, but we don't, a lot of times they don't even use that. One, the camp is right on a creek. It's a small creek. It's called Deep Creek, but it didn't deep. Um, <laughs> but Deep Creek comes by, and one of the activities is that we're right off of the outskirts of a national forest, is we load the kids in a bus and we go up and we enter tube down the river. Well, it doesn't take much effort. You get on the inner tube, and if you've done the Itchituckney or some of the rivers around Florida, you just float. You don't really have to do anything. Occasionally, you might hit a rock. 
But if the water's normal, it's a very leisurely activity. You just sit there. You don't have any protective gear. You're just floating. The current's going to take you eventually to where we get out. But it doesn't really require effort. Now, there's a second water activity that's whitewater rafting. Where all the kids gear up and you're in a boat and there's a current again. But it's a whole different story, particularly if you're piloting a boat. You're working the entire time to steer and direct, and you're rowing and paddling, and it's dangerous. For far too many Christians, they think of the Christian life, or at least they live the Christian life, like it's tubing versus rafting. In other words, they're not putting forth any effort. They're just floating along wherever it takes them, and at some point they'll die. And what Peter is laying out for us is that the Christian life is hard work. Borrowing the imperfect analogy, it's the rafting. It's the constant effort. You've got to steer. You've got to fight. And eventually you'll get to the end, but it's dangerous along the way. And it's hard work. We're supposed to be working and striving to accomplish what's in front of us. And I just want to stress that as we start to get into these characteristics because we need to be exerting our energies. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talked about exerting in a different analogy in the running context. Familiar verse in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the context of all of this is that we are to work at these things. We're not spectators. We have to be putting forth effort. I read a, a quote in a couple of different places and, and the language is a little different, but it really is apt and it said for, along the lines of, for many people, the Christian life, and this part is the quote, an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. We're being called to something beyond that. We're being called to be moving, not just once at the moment of our salvation, but constantly. So with that backdrop, let's jump into these eight mile markers of Christian maturity. The first is this. Genuine faith. Genuine faith. He begins and he says, In your faith, supply moral excellence. Now, faith is the only one of these, and I mentioned there was one exception. This is the only one that we don't work for because God enables us to believe. He regenerates our heart and we have faith. But I don't want to skim past this for the reasons that matched up with what Pastor Steve said this morning that we don't want any of us to be those who are saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we? Peter has made it clear what he's talking about in the second part of verse 1 of this book, of this chapter. To those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers but within the church, there's always the warning that there are tares with the wheat. Part of why I don't want to fly by this is because I want to make sure, 
even if this doesn't have direct applicability to us because we are saved, that we are thinking this way about others in a good sense. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you were in the faith. Examine yourselves. We need to be certain that not only are we living out our faith, but that we have a genuine faith to begin with. Part of why this is near and dear to me is simply because of my own experience. For years, I lived a horrifically pagan lifestyle and called myself a Christian, and I saw no inconsistency. God was merciful to spare my life, but I was one of those that would have said, well, Lord, Lord, I, I prayed a prayer. I went to church sometimes, if my mom made me. But as believers, we need to be careful. Again, I pray that it's not applicable to you, but it could be applicable to your children or to your grandchildren or to your nieces and nephews. And we need to be careful about the type of belief in Jesus and historical facts that is not salvific. Again, when I first came to faith, the first book I heard taught through was the book of James. The faithful man, I don't remember his name, but Debbie and I were in a Sunday school class, and the guy faithfully, he was just a lay person. I think he worked in construction or something, but he was a good Bible teacher, and he went through it. But I always remember this verse, James chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And then he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? But it struck me because the reason I thought I was okay with God, even though I was living a completely pagan lifestyle for years, was because I believed in Jesus. What was so scary when I read the book is I realized my belief was like the demon's belief. It was not salvific. And so we need to be careful when we're dealing with others and when we're talking with others. Certainly we think the best of people. If someone tells me they're a Christian, I don't tell them I think you're lying. I accept their word. But we need to be discerning. We need to be careful. Why do we have to be careful? Not because I'm afraid they're going to do something bad to us, but because we could be missing an opportunity to evangelize someone who has a belief, but it's a belief like the demons. We need to make sure that people understand the true gospel. Romans 8, 8 to 10. But what does it say? The word is near in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Further down in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So we proclaim the truth, and we keep proclaiming the truth, but we can't advance on the road to Christian maturity if we're not Christians. None of what I'm talking about is just work to do to get God's favor. It's assuming we already have the faith that is the gift from God such that we already have God's favor. Now, what do we do with it? In a sense, once you have faith, and I trust that all of you do, that's the mile marker one. 
We crossed the state line. Now we're going on the road. So let's get into our second mile marker to Christian maturity. The first is genuine faith. The second is moral excellence. Moral excellence. And Peter says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. Now we're getting into all of the remaining seven items that we must zealously pursue, that we have to exert ourselves, applying all diligence. And Peter's making it clear this is a comprehensive, full effort by the use of the word that's translated in the New American Standard, supply. In your faith, supply. And the word has an interesting history, at least it was interesting to me, because it's a picture of how much of our energy and effort should be going into each of these things. The supply applies to every one of these seven that's coming. Each of the remaining mile markers, we're supposed to supply, we're supposed to do this. And the root or the context behind the word had to do with someone who provided the necessary resources to put on a production. The theatrical world was big, and yet to put on a production the right way was very costly. You had to have the funds for all the performers, all of the backdrop, the place to meet, everything. And this word supply had to do with the person who was the benefactor. They were the ones that poured out everything generously, bountifully, so that something could be done with excellence. Not skimping, but everything. And so the word came to take on the meaning of zealousness, abundance, hard effort, eagerness, action. So really applying all diligence is saying put forth your efforts. And here it's saying put forth all your efforts. Everything. So for everything we're talking about the rest of this week and next week, it's a full court effort. And the first of these qualities is translated moral excellence. Moral excellence. Now what's interesting is Peter has already used this exact word. If you just look up to verse 3, he says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. It's the exact same word. They've just added the descriptor moral, but in the Greek it's the same. Other versions translate the word slightly differently. They will use the word virtue. But the idea is someone who's exerting efforts to be like Christ, to follow his example. Some suggest the idea of courage and conviction is wrapped up in this. The idea is you're standing for Jesus, following his example, regardless of how difficult life is. You can imagine the context being along the lines of people are expected in the course of living out their Christianity to suffer like Jesus suffered. American Christianity is an, an anomaly. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. We're getting that now. But he said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And by God's grace, we've been spared most of that.
But you can imagine if you're living in a hostile society, which we increasingly are, and persecution starts, you need to have the courage of your convictions. You need to be like Jesus, who while people loved him when he was providing them food to eat and healing them, ultimately they were screaming, crucify him, and mocking him and hating him. But we're to be like Christ. We're to have his standard of moral excellence. We're to attain to his level of strength and courage and behavior in the midst of everything. My mind was drawn to the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I read verse 1. Verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. In other words, we run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That's this picture is that we are to replicate Jesus' excellence. We have all we need to do that. We've been given the promises of God. We've been given the faith we need. But now we have to work to live it out to be like Christ. And how this happens, again, all these build on each other. But that leads us to our third mile marker. Genuine faith. Number two, moral excellence. Number three, growing knowledge. Growing knowledge. Again, the word supply carries through all of this. But to your faith, moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And knowledge here is a critical issue. In fact, it's a critical issue for all of the New Testament, but it's a critical issue for Peter in addressing false teachers. This isn't just about knowing more facts and details. The knowledge in view here is the sober-minded ability to survey everything that's going on and make wise decisions because we're applying the truths of God's Word to the chaos of life. In other words, to live a Christ-like, morally excellent life, choosing the best path at all times... We have to have the knowledge of God ingrained in us, not so that we can recite it for an exam, but so that in the moment we can think God's thoughts, particularly when our flesh is fighting against us. The knowledge involved here is the ability to make the right decisions at the right time, all based on the knowledge of God as revealed in Scripture. Throughout the New Testament, when the writers are warning against false teachers, it all comes back to the idea of knowledge. False teachers were spreading false knowledge. They were claiming to speak the truth and they were saying, look, the Bible doesn't have what you need. Over here, I've got the secret knowledge. Again, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and this isn't in my notes. But what did Satan say to Eve? First, he said, did God really say and distorted God's word? Well, that didn't work. Eve said, no, 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 that's not what he said. But then Satan says, well, God's holding out on you. 
You're not going to die. That's what his word says. If you do this, look what's going to open up to you. You're going to have everything. That lie is still being taught over and over again. It was being taught at the time of the writing of Second Peter. It's permeating the world around us today. Again, in Second Peter 2.1, and the entire chapter is talking about this, but he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. In other words, they'll claim to have knowledge that's a lie. And later in that chapter, as Peter is critiquing them, and the picture he paints of people following this way is not a flattering picture, but he says in verse 12, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. He was saying in, a, in this particular area, and we'll cover it when we get there, they were going on and on, and yet they were ignorant. They didn't have the knowledge. So it's clear we need to have more and more knowledge. It's a lifelong pursuit, and it's this effort. Again, we can be passive and float into church on our inner tube and listen to Steve and float out. And then float in the next week and we'll hear again and then float out. But it's a battle because we're supposed to be taking that knowledge and applying it during the week when it's hard, when we're interacting with unbelievers, when we're interacting with our family, when we're interacting with the lost, when we're fighting against our own flesh. So we have to work to obtain more and more and more knowledge, this practical wisdom, the ability to apply God's Word. How do we do that? I think from the Scriptures it comes in two primary ways. One is we study the Word. We do go to the sermons. We do come to Sunday school. We do read the Word on our own during the week. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, apart from the God-man Jesus, of course, but of those born of women, Solomon, was given by God in answer to prayer wisdom. And Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, really clarifies and I think lays out what Peter's trying to get us to know about knowledge. He said, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. You could almost sum up, that's what Jesus lived, that moral excellence. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And again, I'm just going to read more of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her, as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. 
From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That truth is taught throughout the scriptures. God is the one who gives true knowledge and understanding. God is the one from whom we can get actual truth. Wisdom and knowledge to navigate this difficult life on this difficult earth in these fleshly bodies can only come from a comprehensive knowledge of God's Word that is lived out and applied rigorously on a daily basis. And again, even though this is hard work and I'm telling you it's hard work, I'm also telling you, you've already been promised that you can do it. We've read it and reread it, but again, looking back, the verses right before us, 3 and 4 of chapter 1 of Second Peter, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So when He says... Apply yourself rigorously to pursue moral excellence, which is being like Christ. He's telling us how that comes about from the precious, magnificent promises of God's Word. God's given us the resources. We have to work to apply them to our lives. The world is evil. It calls up, down, and it calls evil good. So we must continually fill our minds with the truths of God's Word because the world is telling us we have found knowledge that would change everything. And it's a lie. That's why we do go to church and listen to Steve. I hope that's why you come to this class that is heavy on teaching. That's why you should attend or at least listen to the sermons on Sunday night. I realize some can't drive at night and it's a long way, but listen to the sermons. They're online for you. Read the Bible on your own. I can just promise you there's never too much of God's Word in your life. And again, it's supposed to be work, not just the lazy river that takes us past the pulpit once a week. But I think from Scripture, prayer is also a critical part of acquiring this wisdom. One of the struggles I had as a young believer, and I don't think my experiences are different, I just was in a unique world, was I was already a lawyer and I was already practicing law, and of course I worked with unbelievers. And lawyers have different ways of looking at life and different ways of doing things. And I've shared this in different contexts, but there's a lot of lawyering that would not be consistent with Christianity. That's hard to believe, I'm sure. (laughs) But one of the things that I really struggled with is there's lies that lawyers tell themselves or that tell others that are accepted lies. In other words, lawyers know that they're lying to each other, but it's professionally acceptable to tell these kind of lies. Lawyer and lying, I know that you think synonymous, but I'm talking about two different things. So. But there was a certain type of dishonesty that was expected of the legal profession. And as I'm reading scriptures, I'm seeing that lying lips are an abomination of the Lord. And, hmm, now, how do I do this? I'm, I was a young guy, I don't know, 26, 27. 
And it was a struggle for me. How do I navigate this? Because everybody around me does one thing, and yet I read in the scriptures that I shouldn't do that. How do I deal with it? I kept going back to the Word of God over and over. There was a, I've said it in other contexts, but for years, I carried a three-by-five note card in my pocket as a lawyer. Why? Because I needed those scriptures over and over and over again. What I could do, what I couldn't do. I needed to see it in front of me. Now probably everybody would do it this way. But the point was, I didn't know what to do. And one of the scriptures that I always had in front of me was, again, that book of James. The first book that I had heard taught. It's the first book I taught in Faith Builders, if you've been here a long time. But in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 8, Words that have always reverberated with me because I would walk around as a lawyer praying this because I didn't know what to do. But even though God's given us all the resources, perhaps in the moment you won't know exactly which scripture to apply to your situation and know what to do. James tells us what to do when we need that kind of practical knowledge in the moment. James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Then in verses 6 and 7 and 8, he makes it clear you've got to ask in faith. But when we're faced with those difficult circumstances and we know we need to apply the Word of God, we need to have the knowledge, but we're not exactly sure how to go about it, we've read the Scriptures and we're still puzzled, ask of God, pray. Our first step when faced with a difficult choice shouldn't be to ask 15 people for their opinions, although there's nothing wrong with seeking counsel from wise, godly people. But that should come after we've gone to God. What jumped to my mind was Paul's prayer, and I've taught on this before, but Paul's prayer to the church in Colossae that it was dealing with this same issue, the knowledge of God's Word to be able to walk and live the life of moral excellence. In Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 9 to 12. And Paul, although he hadn't met this church, he had had a good report from the man who founded the church, we think, Epaphras. And Paul knew they had genuine belief, and he begins the book talking about their genuine belief and the evidence presented to him of their genuine belief, and he was rejoicing for that. Verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, and what he's talking about, he heard of their faith. So they had the faith. He says, Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what was his prayer? and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what we're striving for. That's why prayer is so critical. Paul said, We've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Think from Paul's example, from the command of James, it's clear an element of us working towards this 
knowledge is praying for wisdom. Peter's telling us the same thing. We're to acquire this knowledge, this greater knowledge that we add to our attempts to walk like Christ because ultimately all of this is going to allow us to walk worthy in a manner that pleases God. To allow us to live in an excellent manner, a Christ-like manner. False teachers rely on ignorance to get disciples. They rely on people not knowing the word of God. That's what Satan was doing with Eve, hoping she didn't know it. Peter knew for his original audience what we still need to know. To fight false teaching, to fight errors, we have to be filled with the truth. Peter says this in chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, he's just saying, remember the word. Remember the word of God. I'm going to keep stirring it up. I'm going to keep telling you. And I pray that as we continue through Second Peter, we'll be doing that here, just continually stirring up the need to remember the commandments of the Lord. So we got through three today. We'll stop there and then we'll come back and I hope by God's grace to finish the rest of these mile markers next week. But I just pray for each of us, even now, be studying the Word. Be in the Word. And if you think about your life and you just are floating on the inner tube that occasionally somebody on the bank is preaching and then you keep on going and it doesn't affect you, ask God to change your heart. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your mercy. Lord, I know how many times since I came to faith in 1993... I've not done the things that I'm exhorting my brother and sisters to do. And Lord, you are a merciful and patient God. And we thank you for that. Your word is so convicting and challenging because it sets a standard that we have every ability to meet because of your spirit dwelling within us and the powerful promises you've given us. And yet, Lord, in our flesh and with our sinful tendencies, we can relax and take it easy. You provide us at Lakeside a literal banquet of sound teaching so that we can know your word, so that we can know how Jesus lived, so that we can follow in his example. Lord, help us exert the energy and effort to take advantage of the banquet you've set. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be good examples. We want our lives to be a testimony to a lost and dying world. I pray that as we continue through this study, you'll convict us, but you'll also encourage us. Lord, I pray that you'll challenge us, but I also pray that you'll inspire us so that if we've gotten a little bit lax and a little bit lazy, we can trade in our inner tube for a raft and a paddle, Lord, and start working. 
We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. I look forward to seeing you next week.